simple questions, learning questions is fine. It's when people do stupid things like, hi, I've just brought this snake. I don't know what it is. Can you tell me? Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Welcome to From the Ground Up. Thank you, everyone, for being here. So Port City Pythons, we do have some animals hatching. We have a whole bunch of corn snakes. We have our Florida king snake clutch that is up now, if you want to check that out, on portcitypythons.com, as well as we have uh, our caramel sun kiss, some honey stuff coming up. And that stuff will slowly trickle onto the website while I get time to uh, separate everyone and individually picture everyone. Right now, uh, last night, I separated and fed 53 babies, and today I got like another 30 or so to go. So uh, that's what I'm kind of busy doing. So sorry I don't get them on the website right away, but we're trying to get everyone established feeding, all that good stuff. T-shirts are available at portcitypythons.com, as well as springtails available on the website as well, as well as sphagnum moss. Other than that, that's pretty much all I got for you. The guest I have on the podcast today is Gavin from Balls to You. Gavin is a ball python keeper, breeder, YouTuber, all things UK ball pythons. We'll talk a bit about that. But uh, Gavin, could you give us a little overview of who you are and kind of how you got involved in the reptile hobby? Sure. Hi, guys. Um, okay. First things first, obviously, my name's Gavin. Um, I'm Balls to You on YouTube and Instagram. Um, I'm my passion is ball pythons, let's say, um, as well as keeping and breeding ball pythons, which we'll talk about, you know, that, how I see it being the same or very similar. Um, for me, um, ball pythons was just such a uh, such an array of, of colors and mutations that, you know, it sort of, there was something for everyone, you know. And uh, I remember seeing the first bumblebee ball python and that just that just blew me away you know? um so for me i was very excited about getting into ball pythons and breeding ball pythons um i've kept them for years and again kept other species but for me the actual the excitement of the mutation side of things was what drawn me in. um obviously i decided to start documenting and and trying to help people by YouTube. Uh, and for me, that was really successful because I noticed there wasn't a lot of help out there when, when I was uh, trying to get into it. And I emailed quite a few breeders and, and people like that um, asking for help. And uh, I quickly realized it was a, a type of pay-to-play hobby. Uh, you know, if you brought the snakes off the breeders, and they were willing to help you. Um, for me, I felt that was a bit, a bit wrong because for me, I just wanted, you know, I'm a very helpful top guy. So for me, helping people comes naturally. So I didn't quite understand why people didn't want to help. You know? So that's where the old YouTube was born from, trying to help people and document my journey as well. Where, what year did you start your YouTube channel? Oh, God, now you're asking. Um, 
I think it was around about five years ago, I think. Um, for me, it wasn't – there was a there was a fine – there wasn't that many people, let's say, doing YouTube in the reptile industry or in the reptile hobby, um, <clears throat> especially ball pythons. Um, if we look at the reptile community as a whole and we break down every species into a category, you know, ball pythons – takes a small percentage, you know, you've got clubrids another, you've got lizards another, you've got, you know, so on and so forth. Um, so for me in the UK, there certainly wasn't many people in the UK uh, producing videos and, and trying to help people in the UK. A lot of it was still on reptile forums. So for me, um, I didn't know what I was going to get into. I just, I learned, I'm not a, a stupid type of guy, you know, I can read a book, not a problem. I can't quite take a book in, whereas if I watch a film, I can tell you every second of that film and I can relay back and all that sort of stuff. So for me, visually taking information was the way forward, and I felt if that worked for me, it would certainly help for a lot of people. So hence the YouTube. I don't want to get uh, weird on a level, but that visual sense of your learning, do you think that helps you as far as, or it's something that makes you interested in the visual aspect of the snakes themselves? Sure. I mean, for me, I still get wowed by the quality of a single gene, let's say. So if you take just a pastel, yeah, if you've got a high-quality pastel, that can still wow me as much as seeing a three- or a four-gene animal. And sometimes, like, I'm a big sort of, uh, you know, build from the ground up. You know, buy your base genes the quality genes, and then put them together, then make your combos. Um, and for me, when I started seeing the the standard mutations, let's say, or the single gene mutations, I fast, I quickly learned that there was there was different qualities out there. You know, um, so me learning visually helps me. I believe visually regarding you know, the mutations and the, the quality and picking out what genes are in what combos, you know, I think that, that kind of helps. But um, I'm quite, like with me, I like to see how something works. So mechanically minded, you know, my background from when I was a kid, you know, 15 working on cars, you know, in garages and quickly working my way up in the industry and becoming a master technician. Um, you know, I, I have that ability to think and, and I think when I read stuff it doesn't keep me interested you know and and so for me I learn better by watching things or learn quicker by watching things you know? and what was one of the first things as far as ball pythons go uh, what was one of the first mutations or looks of a ball python that caught your eye like I said was the bumblebee a uh, simple two gene animal and it just blew me away um, I remember seeing Kevin at Nerd uh, showing it off and I just stopped and I remember exactly what I was doing. I was in my house and I just stopped and I was like, what the hell is that? Uh, and and I saw saw the picture in a book um, and it was just a simple, you know, how to care for your ball python book. Um, and I, would, I want to say it was around about 2000 and I saw that picture and I was like, wow, that is, that's not a ball python. That was, 
got to bear in mind, you know, we didn't have much, or I didn't have that much exposure back then. And for me to see that just then opened a can of work in a good sense, you know. So for me, that, the, the ball python, um, the, the, the bumblebee and the xantic clown, the next mutation I saw, uh, the combination, sorry. Um, and those two for me were just like, yeah, that's, I've, I've got it now. I know what I want to do. Because at that point, I get corn snakes, I've got boas, um, and again, a few ball pythons. And that's why for me, like I, said, you know, I decided to get in the ball python. And I mean, 2004 or so, that was literally just the beginning of the, the morph craze, it seems. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember, I mean, I've still got one of my original females. She's 2003, um, sugar, bless her. She's she's just a straight normal or classic, whatever you want to call her. Um, and for me, she, this is, this is where I become a keeper. Yeah. For me, I will always keep her. You know, I've, and I've got other species, you know, dart frogs. I've got Pac-Man frogs. I would like to keep other species of, of, of snakes, but at the moment I'm not kind of set up for that, so I won't just jump into that. But for me, yeah, I think I, I heard there was a pied that had been um, – the pied mutation had been proven out. We knew there was hypo, um, hypo genes such as the orange ghost – and all them lines, um, and I believe, obviously, the spider and the pastel. Um, but again, seeing them mutations and then seeing them in combos are two different things. So you can look at a pastel and go, wow, you know, that's a pastel. Back then it was like, okay. But then when you see it in a bumblebee, that's what drove people to go and get the ingredients to make the, that, that, that combination. So sometimes, for me, the... The ability to to see the combo is what drives people to go out and get the mutations. Absolutely, and at that time, I mean, in order to get the ingredients was a big a big haul. Let alone, you know, you can't just go up and pick up a bumblebee. So, I mean, they were very expensive in the states. Were they available yeah. at all in the UK? Well, not that I know to. However, what was quite what was quite good. Uh, was back in the day we were realising that uh, we was having imports come through and obviously into the into the industry and what uh, into the hobby into the pet shops and um, you know back then ball pythons weren't really uh, seen as the snake to have. Um, however, what that enabled was people were able to buy these so-called normal-looking ball pythons that actually turned out to be pastels or yellow bellies or mojaves and by pure accident we actually started to realize um and fires as well fire was another one that came into the uk well into europe and then into the uk purely by accident i believe into the uk so there was a lot of mutations that came into the uk um that was pure um you know accidental let's say and in the states you know they were fetching big money um, but again, it's like, you know, you buy a baby, you keep it, you grow it up, you then maybe want to breed it and so on and so forth. And, and you know, the, back in them days, 
Um, there wasn't as much information as there is now. You can't just jump on World of Ball Pythons and just have a quick look and confirm, oh, yeah, that's what that is. You know, especially if you're in a, in a, in a pet shop, you can't just pull out your phone like we can do now, you know. So a lot of the times it was, it was sort of you look at something by eye. I don't remember seeing many combinations um, back then, but I, I, I wasn't really kind of looking, if that makes sense. When I saw the bumblebee, I then decided to look on the reptile forums, and that's when that opened the whole world of the, the, the mutation, the breeding, the combos, and I just sat quietly in the background on the reptile forums just watching people, you know, Ralph Davies forums, Bush League Breeders Club, um, obviously RFUK, you know, um, all them sort of things, uh, all them sort of uh, 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 forums and just watching people just post these amazing pictures you know, and just follow their story. I think that people people should take away from that and the fact that you stood back as far as just like a lot of people when they first get in. Um, nowadays, it seems like a lot of people want to have an opinion right off the right off the go. But I mean, a lot of times it took you like two to three years. You want to read everything. You want to not come across like an idiot because you know that that's important, that, you know, you want to get your feet under you before you start flippantly making posts on forums and stuff like that. Sure. And, and, Believe you me, there was uh, there was I, I sat back and watched quite a few arguments on on the reptile forums, uh, especially you know, seeing Ralph Davies put people in their place, you know, and, and argue with people. It, it was kind of like uh, how could I say it was like watching a soap opera, you know. It was sort of like, oh, who's going to say what? What's going to say, you know? And and a lot of the times, even now, you know, we're still learning, we're still making mistakes. I still make mistakes, and what I say to people is. Take your time, research, research, research. doesn't matter whether it's ball pythons, colubrids, lizards, whatever. Take your time, do your research, and, you know, just just gradually work your way in. What we do see, what we have saw, I don't think it's much now, but what we used to see was breeders kind of selling the dream, you know, oh, okay, yeah, you don't have to wait. I've got these animals. You can have them at this much price, you know, th at this price tag. And you breed them together, you're going to make thousands and thousands of dollars and thousands and thousands of pounds. And sure enough, a lot of people got stung and bit that way. And they were literally in and out of the hobby, you know, within a year. Uh, I was talking to Mark um, over at Marcus Jane Reptile, and we were saying, we've seen so many people come and go over the years. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. You know, and uh, if you just take your time, do your research, there's no race, it's no rush, um, you will certainly have a lot of, you'll have a lot of enjoyable years and a lot of longevity within the hobby and you'll just enjoy the ride um, rather than sort of crashing the minute you start. Um, so for me, take your time, do your research and slowly build your collection from the ground up. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. and if you were, you know, if you were starting over right now, how exactly would you start? Because it's a completely different market from when you started, especially ball pythons. I mean, how would you get your start today? Sure. Uh, and to be honest with you, um, the there's no real there's no real successful blueprint 
it's whatever works for you. You know, you may have someone that may has, you know, that has ten thousand pound or ten thousand dollars to spend, and you may have someone who's only got a thousand dollars or a thousand pounds to spend, and sometimes not even that. For me, it doesn't matter about the money or, or how much you have. For me, it's all about your research and buy with your eyes. You know, that's one of the things I say to people. Buy with your eyes. Don't rush into it. Take your time. Search out that animal and look at that animal and go, is that the best quality of animal that I can buy? And certainly I've brought animals um, which are like two genes as opposed to the, the three-gene animal. Because when I looked at the three-gene animal, it didn't quite knock me off my feet with the two-gene animal. So for me, if I was starting out and getting people to start out, the, the, the difference is with now and then is there's so much out there. There's so many options for people that it's very easy for people just to dive in and get whatever they see first. They don't research the breeder. They don't research the species. They don't research the, the morphs and where they want to go and where they expect to see. A lot of the times it can be an impulse buy. Um, so it's, it is a hard thing. You know, you can walk around the supermarket and just see something and go, oh, I want that. And you go and get it and then you realize you get home and it's a bit of an impulse buy. So for me, it's all about, again, if you're going to start out now, research how you keep your animals, the best way to keep your animals. And the one thing that people do forget is feeding animals. You know, um, they sometimes people have gone out and brought, you know, 30 snakes within the space of a month, and they forget they've got to feed that snake every every week. And then all of a sudden, you know, they work out very quickly that they haven't got the money or that it's going to cost them a lot of money to, to feed that collection. So start off slow, buy with your eyes, start at the bottom, just work your way up. That's the best thing I can say to people. That is absolutely true, especially when it comes to feeding, and that goes for any species because I've felt that as well. It's when you when you have a good year, you hold a bunch of things back, and then you got to yeah. get emails going again, and then you're like, oh, shit, this is more than I bargained for. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And that's the same. I mean, I mean, again, the, the, the breeding side of things, and you know this as well as I do, when you've got certain species of um, animals that give you 30 eggs at a time it's okay putting 10 pairs together but if they have 30 eggs and all 10 of those pairs go that's 300 babies you're gonna have to feed you're gonna have to house can you do it and it's okay oh you know yeah i've got all these eggs and da, da, da. but then panic sets in you go oh shit i've got to feed them i've got to house them i've got to clean them i've got to I've got a family to look after. I've got a job to do. Oh my God! You, you know that—that that is all the other side of breeding that can be a bit of a, something that people forget. You know, um, and that as you—you've just said, you know, you've got all these babies, and you said you got—you did fifty last night. You've got another thirty to go. That's a lot of work. A lot of work. You know, um, people need to think about that. Yeah, and it's doing the record keeping. It's keeping everything straight. It is keeping everything organized while you're doing all that work. And uh, yeah, and and you learn over time. You you fuck it up, which is why you get better and do it different the next year. But you can't. It would probably be hard to start learning with a thousand babies in your first season. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, and again, like I said, you know, I've seen so many people jump in and they go out and they buy these this collection that they've got 30 ball pythons and then all of a sudden their heating bill comes in, their feeding bill comes in, their time, and, and time is money, let's face it. And, you know, and, and you've also got to bear in mind if you as a person are going to be doing this hobby, it takes a lot of time away from your external life. So family, you know, work, other hobbies, other commitments. You know, you've got to try and work out a system that uh, you can fit everything in. But fortunately, all pythons are pretty nocturnal. So feeding on a night time when everyone else is asleep or when you finish your day at work, or, you know, is a good time to, to get on and crack on. Um, but that can take you away from the... Uh, from the pleasures of going to bed with your other half, if you know what I mean. So, you, you know, there's a lot of things to take into consideration when you jump into, into the reptile hobby. Um, and again, you need to look at it from the platforms. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's what people mismanage in the beginning, and then that's how you get people neglecting their animals. So it's, you gotta you got to figure your stuff out. you got to start slowly because you're going to have to make – and you're also going to have to make a lot of sacrifices. Just you got to put your animals first or else you're just simply not going to be successful. Sure. I mean, there's so many um, – there's so many positives, don't get me wrong, so many positives in this hobby uh, and so many – so much good – but what we used to, what what we wasn't exposed to before was the the, the bad times. You know, the the animals dying, the babies not making it, the animals not feeding. Like I said, the price of food, housing, cleaning, time. Um, you know, not being able sometimes to go on on holiday for two or three weeks because you've got to get back and look after the rodent colony, the rats, whatever you call them, because. You know, you don't have anyone who can come in and help. And, and that's the other thing, you know, people get into breeding and they, they get the babies, they hatch them. And then they go, oh, my, my babies won't feed. Okay, well, have you tried live? Well, no, I don't have any live. And that's something else that people, you know, in the UK, it is, it is frowned upon to feed live, um, believe it or not. And, and in some cases, it is against the law. However, if that animal requires life for its diet, and that's the only thing it will take, then that is deemed to be okay. Um, but again, stuff we all have to research, we all have to look into. Um, and, it, and it's not so much the negative side of things, like I said, you know, with animals dying or babies not making it out of the egg. It's the realization of, look, this is what it is. You know, it, the good does outweigh the bad. But just be prepared for that bad, and, and that's something that I wouldn't say I've led. I would say I've helped expose people to the the the, the what could happen. You know, it's happened on me. Males have died, females have died, babies haven't come out of the eggs, or struggling because they've got caught up, or this that, and the other. Um, luckily, I've never lost a baby. Um, with because I cut my eggs. There, there's another topic, you know, hot topic, another debate that's going on quite a lot, cutting eggs. Um, I did a rant video on that not too long ago um, and for the reasons why I do it. Um, but again, like I said, you know, that you have these 
these people who listen to other people and they say, don't cut the eggs and let them pip. And then the babies don't pip. And then they're on day 16, they're like, well, it should have been out five days ago. They're like, well, cut the egg open. They cut the egg open and the ba- they find the baby wraps up in its umbilical cord. And yet if they were cutting it on day 55 regarding, you know, making sure the temperatures were correct and all that sort of stuff, they may have been able to save that baby. Now, them losing that baby could be enough for them to go, I don't want to do this now. I want to get, get out of the hobby. No one told me about this. I listened to this person. This person said, let them pip, you know, and this baby didn't pip because it was caught up in its umbilical cord and it, didn't, it couldn't get round to cut itself out. And sure enough, it drowned in the egg. Um, so for me, it, it's all about making people aware of what could happen. But don't let it dishearten you. Don't let it disgruntle you. you know, just move forward, keep on, and just, just stay with it because it is a fantastic hobby. Absolutely. I think that what we probably got caught in the trap went trap that we all, when we first started is that you have, I'm going to get a pastel, another pastel. I'm going to get a certain percentage of super pastels, pastels, normals, and then this, how much money I'm going to make. But you don't realize that in that formula, there's a bunch of stuff in the middle that could potentially fuck it all up and completely throw it out the window. And then when that happens, you're like, Oh damn, well my calculations didn't work. So therefore I don't think this is worth it anymore. Yeah. Um, so there's different stages with just put the money aspect aside. With breeding, there's different stages. So the, first of all, you're going to buy your male and female as hatchlings, let's say. And then you're going to grow them up for two years. Within those two years, anything could happen. The male or the female could go off food. So for two years, you're hoping and your dreams are all on these fem- this male and female breeding. First of all, you've got to get there. So let's say, okay, the female goes off food or whatever, or the male goes off food. You eventually get there, and it's four years later. So again, going back, well, if I if I spend this much money, and I buy the most, you know, whatever the the top morph is at the moment to buy, spend all this money, you say, yeah, my business plan is I'm, I'm gonna you know, two years, I'm gonna be able to breed this, do that produce all this money, it doesn't work like that. These are animals. You know, I've certainly brought animals off big breeders, um, who breeders who I look up to. And things haven't gone my way, you know. Um, I've spent good money and things haven't gone my way. But I'm prepared for them because I know how it can be. And nothing's a guarantee. You know, these are animals. We can't just put them together and produce eggs. We, we've got to make sure everything's correct. They're healthy, you know. Um, then once we do get eggs, then we've got to make sure we're incubating them correctly. Then how do we set up an egg box? Do we separate the eggs or do we leave them in a club? Do we do we wait 55 days or do we wait 60 days? Then once you cut the eggs open or you wait for them to pip and they come out, then you've got to hopefully they make it to the shedding stage. Uh, talking preferably with ball pythons. And then after the shedding stage, then we've got to separate them and try and get them feeding. And sometimes getting them feeding can be a bugbear. Um, then once they're feeding, you've got to try and get them, especially in the UK, striking for frozen thawed. Then once they, they're striking and they're healthy and they're shedding, then you're going to obviously pick what you want to hold back. 
then the rest you're going to sell. But that's if you sell them. So there is a lot of steps through that process where you never, you know, you never sort of sit back and relax. You know, there's always something you've got to try and sort of not worry about, just sort of, right, okay, we're through this stage, we're on to the next stage right now. We've got to get through that stage onto the next stage. And it's certainly, you know, this isn't, this isn't, and, and I say this to everyone, this isn't a hobby where you're going to get rich. As long as you work out that it will cost you money, but look at it in a concept that as long as it covers your costs, so it covers your rodent bills, your heating bill, you know, a little bit of time and effort, whatever money you make, whatever, however little or much it makes, just realize that, you know, going back to that time is money. So if you work for a company and you're on, 20 bucks an hour or $20 or 20 pound an hour for every hour you spend in the reptile room is an hour away from your family or from your, you know, whatever you're doing. So that money, yes, you've got, you've made a chunk of change, but you've also got to think the time and effort that you've put into those animals. So really you may, it's not a get, it's definitely not a get rich quick. Uh, and for those people who think that they can breed, two of the most expensive ball pythons together and they'll produce a load of babies and start selling and they've got a, nothing coming, trust me. Yeah, and I think what's what's interesting is that those people always weed themselves out because they don't go through those hard times. But then again, who's who gets hurt during that process is the animals. So how do we stop that from happening? Sure, and the one thing I've learned, uh, Joe, is that we educate the public. And what I mean by that is um, I'm a big proprietor of when there's a reptile show coming up in the UK, there's only four of them at the moment uh, in the UK. Um, Well, one organization, the IHS, they run four shows a year. Um, I always try and say people, put a video out there and say, look, guys, got the reptile show, you're going to be like a kid in a sweet shop, you know, there's going to be so many things to look at, not just ball pythons, other species as well. I always say to people, take your time, speak to the breeder, because certainly in the UK, we can't really advertise it like a business. So the people, you may have a table with loads of snakes or animals on, and the person beyond that table may not even be branded as such. So then you're just talking to guy or a woman and you don't know who they are so i always say to people that you know take your time find out who they are how long they've been doing it you know find out if they've got a particular page on facebook or instagram or social media do a quick you know skim on your phone have a quick look and research that breeder um certainly sometimes talking to a breeder provided they're not like a car salesman excuse the punt um you know Provided that they come across in the right manner, I always say to people, just go away, research the breeder, research if it's a new species you're getting into, you should be doing your research before you even go and look at them. You know? But if it's a breeder that you've never met before, it won't take you long to do a quick skim on the internet, find that person and try and see if they, um, if they are who they are. And certainly I've had a lot of breed, a lot of, success with uh, the public coming up to me and saying, you know, 
thanks for your advice. I was almost going to buy this animal. And I did what you said, and it actually turns out that that person was selling it on behalf of their friends, auntie, uncle, nephew, that they don't even know what the parent is, you know? So educating people in that sense, uh, I think those people who used to make a lot of money by selling people the dream are fading out, you know? And they're realizing that people want customer service and they want quality as opposed to just being sold something and then never seen again before. You know? Absolutely. And how, how do we, I mean, there's probably more people talking to this who aspire to be breeders or who are breeders. How do we kind of get that knowledge out there and educate the general public who may become our customers? It's, it's education, isn't it? It's like I do, like I said, I do the videos. I put them out there. I try and get people certainly around the, the show, the show times of the year in the UK. I just, I just try and tell people, you know, research the breeder, research the animal, um, and just, just get out there on the social media. And certainly for me on Instagram as well, if people don't do YouTube, they can use their Instagram. Uh, for me, they can, you know, if they've brought off someone, they can certainly give someone a shout out. You know, fantastic animal, fantastic uh, service, 100% transparent, and what a top guy to speak to, you know. That word of mouth, for me, within the motor trade, certainly within the motor trade, word of mouth is a massive thing. And for me, that's what it's all about as well in, in this hobby. Word of mouth. Oh, uh, did you watch one of Gav's videos? Oh, did did you see one of Gav's um, uh, posts on Instagram? He he highlighted this person was the person to go to for the albinos or for this particular. You know, so giving people shout outs and saying to people, you know, look, if you want a good albino line or if you want to go and buy a nice albino com- combo, this is the breeder I would recommend. And then you'll find again people will go to other breeders and other breeders will sort of try and the good breeders will try and sort of steer people in the right direction. You know, um, it, some people do learn the hard way you know, and have to get the fingers burnt and it's horrible to say that, but it does happen. Um, but for us in the hobby, it is all about educating the public and just making sure that, you know, um, for me, I'd rather, I don't breed albinos, I'm not in the project, but I'd rather send them to um, my ex-apprentice, let's say, Alan, um, because he does a lot of albino stuff, and he's so invested in making top quality albino combos, I send stuff to him, and then if he has one of his customers, that he hasn't got something, he'll direct it to me. So it's, it's like, you know, we've got to scratch each other's back we've got to educate the public we've got to you know people want customer service and i think that for me is what's gonna and again that's the change that we've seen people now want to talk to you about that animal they want to talk to you and they want to know things the bloodline the mom the dad you know where did you get it from especially you know you probably know yourself with the species that you work with sometimes bloodlines can be more important than anything else yeah and how important does that then make the fact of 
you know, kind of focusing on a single project. So say if your friend is the albino guy being the albino guy, or should you diversify in different ways? Yeah, sure. I mean, you've got a lot of people out there who only work with a particular gene. And what I mean by that is you've got people who work with albino, but they will also throw in leopard or pastel or lesser or enchi. But their main gene that they work with is albino or exantic or clown or pied. Um, and they will make diversity and they will make some projects, some side projects. I always say to people, read, read what you like. So if you speak to Ozzy, over at Ozzy Boyd, and you say, right, Ozzy, what's your favorite gene? What's your favorite animal? But what's your favorite project? He can't answer you because all that he works with, everything he works with is his favorite. Um, and that's the same for me. I can't tell you there's not one project that I work with that I'm not excited about. So people who just want to concentrate on albino, that's fantastic. You know, it's really good. Um, but they will struggle with the gene there to make those combos as well, the quality, all that sort of stuff. So all I say to people is just read what you Work with what you like, what keeps you motivated, and keeps you going. Well, allow me to play devil's advocate and Go on. say, hey, Gavin, what if I like normal ball pythons, or what if I like something that's ugly? What do I do then? Yeah. <laughs> one, of, one of my favorite ball pythons is a normal ball python. Um, she's, as I said, you know, I've had her since 2003. She's absolutely awesome. Um, but if someone wants to get into, like, like for example, there's a lot of people doing the, the Dreamsicle project, which is Lavender Pied project. Um, for me, I think it's an amazing project. It just doesn't get me excited. So for me, I don't, I don't work with that. But, but the same concept works for everyone. So if people want to work with that project or a project, just buy the quality, you know, buy quality simple yeah then how do you how do you go across well at least i found in say cord snakes in particular you can you can have it's not completely up to the market or something you can have an effect on the you know the demand for your snake so if i put out you know 30 mass corn snakes and i keep on saying how awesome I find them because I do find them awesome. And yep. some, some of the old school breeders don't even think that this gene exists for whatever reason, even though I've produced them over and over again. And then it's like, I can, I have an effect of it. No one knew that it exists until I get to say it a million times. And then people start to like it. If that makes any sense. Like I, I have an effect over the demand to a certain degree. Yeah, so I can tell you one similar thing. So, and it's something I've just posted on on YouTube. Uh, I did a uh, a video on the ultramals. Now, the ultramals were or are a line of uh, recessive. Let's say, just keep it simple. That it is a recessive gene. The ultramal, when it came out, was just after the caramel. Caramels were being sold at big money. And then ultramals came through. They weren't compatible. And then caramels were seen to have loads of issues with kinking, females not producing, et cetera, et cetera. But the ultramals had no issues. But then what happened was 
bananas hit the market. And when the bananas hit the market, they were big money because they were, um, you could breed, obviously with it being a co-dominant, you could breed a banana to a normal and 50% of the babies would be banana as opposed to breeding an ultra male to a normal, then all the babies would be normal looking but be 100% hair for ultra male. So ultra males got dropped really quick, especially here in the UK. They vastly plummeted. And for me, I couldn't understand why. I could understand the logic in, in producing bananas and making the money and all that sort of stuff. I got that. But for me, the, the ultra male was such a, an amazing gene that it got better with age. And as adults, they look beautiful. So I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I had an effect on the ultra male market here in the UK, but once I started to showcase the ultra males, people went oh my god like especially new people coming in they were like oh my god what the hell is that and a lot and of the they, old they didn't have to live through the caramel issue so they didn't exactly have to exactly and then and then you got all the old school breeders who had dropped those ultra males you know because they 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 thought oh you know we're not making our money let's drop them let's go and get the banana da, da, da. it was sort of like then they were sort of kicking themselves, thinking, shit, I shouldn't have sold my ultramile stuff because now the ultramiles are going up in price and bananas have gone down in price. So an average banana you could buy for like £100, £150 over here, baby. Um, but the ultramiles now, I sell males and females for around about £300. And they hold the value very well because they get better with age. And of course... Um, they're a recessive, so the project's a lot longer. It's great longevity, um, and not much has been done with it. So very similar to what you said, um, I wouldn't say I am the, the only reason why ultramiles have gone back up there, but showing those genes that have once forgotten, Justin, Justin Kabalka has done that with a lot of genes. Um, you know, a lot of the old genes, he's revamped them in, in other combos, and the prices of those genes have just skyrocketed. So um, I never write anything off. I never think, you know, oh, I'm not that. That's not worth the money. I'm not going to buy it. I just buy it if I like it. You know, if I'm going to work with it, I'm going to work with it. I'm going to put it out there. Let people make up their own mind. You know. Absolutely. But for me, a lot of old school breeders were kicking themselves, and I had a few messages off and on, like quite a few old school breeders saying, uh, "Have you got any more ultra males left?" <laughs> He's like, no, sorry, all gone. You know, so <laughs> yeah, and those are those are the little things that that make you feel like you know you were in the right place at the right time and did the right thing. Especially when those breeders refuse to give me help unless I'm not going to take off, and then the help my advice. They they forget that I would. You know, I never forgot. Those people help. <laughs> Uh, that's
and he was like, he wasn't, he wasn't anyone out there. None of the big groups. He bent over back, and for him, because he was a he he knew a lot a lot more than me, um, and he, he really helped me. With that. So again, like I said, big reason I asked for help back in the day. You know, they're coming to me now and say, yeah, do. have you got this? Good. Good for you. Not in a, not in a negative way, just in a, in a way that you know, that's where the whole force of you came from. Can you, can you take out your headphones? I don't know if it's the headphones that are going in and out, but I can barely hear you. So, like, take them out of the, the jack on the phone. And let's see if we can hear you better. Is that any better? Yeah, that's perfect. Okay. So for me, um, yeah, just quickly touching over that, like I said, you know, um, people who, who didn't help me uh, are now sort of like, I'm, I'm good friends with them, you know, I don't hold a grudge, but, you know, they forget that they sort of, they, uh, they quickly palmed me off. You know, and they didn't help me. Um, but that's where the whole balls to you came from. You know, it was me sticking my two fingers up at them going, balls to you, I'll do it myself. I'll, 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 I'll learn myself. I'll get people to help me and then I'll help them. Right. And I think that it's easy for us when we're selling snakes and when we're doing things is people ask you seemingly silly questions, stupid questions all the time. And it's hard sometimes not to write people off and to do the right thing. But I think it's also important to realize that in any other retail business, if someone came into your store, you, you know, answer their questions, do what you can to, to make everything right. You wouldn't just completely ignore someone, even if their question is seemingly simple to you. Yeah. There's two, there's two lines of question. So there's simple questions, which is fine. You know, we've all been there. It's like driving a car. We've all had to learn, you know. Um, the simple questions, and then there's, and I don't mean this in a negative way, there's stupid, stupidness. And when the stupidness comes along is, for example, I had someone message me the other day. They messaged me saying, hi, my ball python's just laid a clutch of eggs. What do I do? Okay. I was like, okay, well, First of all, um, how long have you had the animal? You know, what type of animal is it? You know, obviously it's a bull python. I mean, like, like what is it? You know, um, tell me a bit more about the animal. And they say, well, I brought the animal pregnant. And I'm like, right, I, I, hold on. So uh, part of their message was, um, Hi, my ball. I woke up this morning, this morning, and it was a surprise. But my ball python's just laid a clutch of eggs. What do I do? So first of all, I try and get some information out of them. And the, one of the things they said was, "I brought the ball python already pregnant." That to me, first of all, they haven't kept ball pythons before. This is the first ball python. Second of all, they know it's pregnant. And they've not prepared anything for it. So I don't mind helping people, but when they don't help themselves and they get into a situation that all of a sudden they want 
know, quick answers to, or they want you to sort of, you know, um, try and help them. It's kind of like you, you've not really helped yourself in this situation, you know? Um, and then that to me is, is if you fail, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. And if you've brought an animal and you know it's gravid and you know it's going to lay a clutch of eggs and you haven't prepared for it, then unfortunately you're going to fail. Um, simple questions like, hi, you know, my humidity, how do I keep my humidity high or this, that and the other, that's just standard learning stuff, you know, and I don't mind helping anyone with, with any basic question. Um, but it's the stupid questions... And I can see how that frustrates people um, because all of a sudden you kind of tell them in a, in a polite way, well, why did you buy it if you're not prepared? And then all of a sudden they take the hump, you know, they get funny with you. Oh, well, if you're not going to help me, da, 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 well, well, hold on a minute, I'll help you, but you've just not really helped yourself. You know? So simple questions learning questions is fine it's when people do stupid things like hi i've just brought this snake i don't know what it is can you tell me and i'm like well so who did you bite off i don't know it was a bloke in the pub you know i did, i just saw it you know and you just think wow you know those are some crazy crazy you know people just get into some crazy situations and those are the Sometimes those are the people that you can't really help, you know, or, or you may struggle to help and can frustrate you. Yeah. And I think that is huge. The fact that, you know, for us, it was such a serious thing. It was put on such a pedestal just to breed a snake would be like an amazing feat and something that took you so much research to achieve. But now it seems that, you know, some people can just fall into it. And then we're kind of like, the hell, man, you didn't do, you didn't do, have to sacrifice and do all the things that, you know, you were supposed to do to do it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it, it it's hard. And, and like, say, you know, uh, every species is different. You've got to learn from the ground up, you know, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of time and effort to put into it. Um, but Again, you know, back in the day, I made some mistakes, you know. Um, I tried to jump the gun, if you like, by buying a gravid female. Um, and it turned out she wasn't gravid. She'd actually got a, 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 a dislocation in her back, which was making her swollen in the abdomen area and not moving correctly. That cost me quite a pretty arm and a leg at the vets to get that looked at. But that was a mistake, like I said, you know, I took it off this this one guy who owned a pet shop, a, well, a reptile shop. It's actually a venomous shop, which is in a thousand miles from where I live at the moment. Um, and uh, since then, he's sort of, for me, I've quickly learned that he's got a bad reputation. Um, but at the time, I was kind of a newbie and just sort of, you know, trying to take a, a jump you know and, and try and get ahead and that's why you've just got to take your time prepare get everything set up correctly and just just take your time yeah it's it's kind of unfortunate in a way though that our industry often sets people up for uh, not exactly for success the fact that the most achievable if you google ball python for sale you're going to get some of the top wholesalers in the world which 
yeah, they may be good at this whole business thing, but they're not necessarily going to give you that one-on-one as well as, you know, you may not get the quality of animal that you're looking for. Sure. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of reptile shops over here in the UK are geared up to selling snake starter kits, which are probably ideal for a corn snake or a rat snake or, you know, some sort of hybrid. Um, but for a bull python, they're not, they're not ideal. Um, and like you said, if someone just wants to go out and get a pet and they go, oh, let's get a pet snake, you know, and then Google pet snake, you know, if they come across a bull python, they get it home, they've got it set up, you know, it's like actually they've got it set up on a full view. You know, uh, believe it or not, people, reptile shops have sold UV lights for ball pythons. And you just think, wow, you know, they're nocturnal. They don't come out during the day, so they don't need a UV. So all that sort of stuff. And again, the people, the, these people can, can get this snake and it vastly deteriorates and they have loads of issues. Um, all of a sudden, they just they don't want it, and they start to start this um, discarding the animal. You know, and that's where we have then got to pick up pieces from someone else's mistakes, you know, rescuing animal, um, all that sort of stuff. And there can be genuine reasons for rescuing an animal, but sometimes they've not sold an animal, or they've jumped in on an animal, they haven't done the research. Um, and this way it leads them. Um, but it is what it is. Like I said, there, there is a 100%, 100% more good in this hobby, industry, you know, whatever you want to call it, than what they used to be. And it is getting better, you know. Um, there's a lot of people now who come to me by their first ball python that have actually done their research. You know? And you'll see some of the comments on my videos. Um, people have gone, I, I, I've been researching that for six months. I'm not going to buy one, but thanks for putting the video out there. You've opened my eyes, da da da. And that sort of to me is like, okay, that person, they're doing it correctly. They're trying to take the time. So, Do you find that through things like YouTube and? you know, putting that education out there, you get more people more educated that are coming to you for snakes? Yes. Yeah. And and the questions that they ask, uh, you can tell that they've done the research. So they'll say stuff like, so if I breed this to a, another Mojave, will I get a blue-eyed leucistic or will I get – and they're starting to use the terminology. They're starting to know the breeding and they have a concept of what they want to make. You know, Gav, I'm buying this because I want to make these in three years' time. You know, they've got this, this game plan, if you like. They've got this mindset that they know what they're doing. They've researched it. And, again, I've had a phone call today from a, a friend slash customer most of my customers end up being good friends, believe it or not. Uh, sort of, they can call me any time of the day. And uh, he was talking to a guy, and he said that basically he was a keeper of, of various species. But he, since my videos, he started to uh, wanting to breed um, ball pythons, um, and he, he he's put it all down to the videos. So YouTube 
has helped a lot of people. Not only my, not only my videos, but a lot of other YouTubers' videos out there have helped a lot of people as well. You know, and that's why sometimes there's a lot of YouTubers out there who don't see how powerful they they are in 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 you know. There's people watching them and. They need to realize and remember that they're actually influencers. You know, they, they influence people and they need to be setting the right examples, I feel, for a hobby and, and for people just getting into the hobby. Yeah, I think that's something that's weird to, to think about, at least on my end, when I make videos or see a video, you know, say it has a thousand views, then I'm like, that's like giving a talk in a thousand, like a thousand person auditorium to a thousand people. And these yeah. people trust you, like you, and they're going to yeah. put into action what you do. And for a lot, for a very long time, I didn't realize the responsibility that was like at my fingertips. But I think you're completely right that like it completely matters what you put out there because you are having an effect. Yeah. I mean, if I said to someone, um, okay, cut your eggs at day 45, yeah, and you're okay, it's safe, and this, that, and the other. You've got to remember that there's a lot of people out there who will not just cut a little slit, they will cut a massive hole. They will put their fingers in, they'll pull the snakes out, you know, like we're talking ball pythons, not retics or anything like that. You know, they'll grab, they'll pull them out. Um, and for me, I mean, I've never cut on day 45. For me, it's all about educating people and saying, right, I'm going to cut on this day. My temperatures are at this. I have done this multiple times. This isn't my first clutch. This is something I know by the look, the feel, the way the eggs are. I know I can feel the baby inside. I know I'm okay to cut. You know, and a lot of the times, like I said, we have to be mindful that what we put out there and we, we sometimes we need to explain why. So we need to explain, okay, I'm cutting this egg or these eggs because of this reason or, or I'm going to breed these snakes or I'm going to not breed these snakes because of they have issues or, you know, I want to make this and and like I said, sometimes um, when um, you see certain breeders on YouTube, and again, not knocking anyone because we have to think they have experience, but when they stick their fingers in and they're pulling out snakes out of the egg, that's because they know that species. And then I've seen other people do it to bull pythons, and that's something we don't do. You know, we don't stick our fingers in, we don't pull the snakes out, we don't have a look at them, we don't put them back in, we just cut, cut a little opening, we have a look, we make sure the baby's okay, then we leave it to come out on its own devices. Again, something that's completely different to one species, you know, could kill a baby in another species. So we have to be mindful of what we're putting out there. So are you, say, a cut on day 55 guy or a first one pips, then you cut the rest guy? I'm a, I'm a cut on day between day 50 and day 55. So for me, my temperatures, uh, so let's say, for example, if I'm going away for a weekend and it's day 50, I will make sure I will cut those eggs so I know 
while I'm away, those babies have got every opportunity to come out of their egg safe and sound. What I have noticed is that, I don't know whether it's this year, but I've seen a lot of people saying that we're not going to cut the eggs until all of them have picked. And, or at least, this is what they start off with. So they say, we're going to wait until all of them have picked and then we're going to cut the eggs. And they come day 60, and there's one or two animals which haven't picked. So then they cut the eggs, and they realize that that baby's got an umbilical wrapped around it, and there was no way it was going to get out, and it's died. And then they go, oh, actually, we're going to wait on this clutch. We're going to wait till one of them picks, or two of them picks, or half the clutch picks. And you can see in that voice, and hearing that voice, that they're a little bit unsure that what they're actually doing is positive. So for me, um, I try and leave them as close to day 55 as possible. But I know my incubator, I know my temperatures. And for me, it's a lot of visualizations. I look at the egg, I pull them apart. I see how easy they are to pull apart because when my snakes lay the eggs, if they're in a clump, lay, how they lay is how they stay. You know, So they go in the incubator and they stay that way. So when I'm pulling them apart and they come apart dead easy, I know that they're ready. I know if I can feel the snake, you know, if I'm pressing the egg and I can feel the snake pushing back on me, let's say, um, then I know what to do. But again, all that experience. Certainly when you've got people out there, like I said, using razor blades, putting their fingers in, putting snakes out, not knocking them, just saying that we need to educate people. You know, almost like don't try this at home. You know, this is your first clutch. Don't try this. I'm an I'm an experienced person. I know what I'm doing. I've been doing this for X amount of years. This is why I do this. You know. Well, and what's the best utensil, in your opinion, to go ahead and put a cut in an egg? Um, I use uh, people take the Mickey out of me because I use a little baby scissors, which have got like a blunt end for like cutting babies' toenails and stuff. Um, I use little baby scissors. I always have done. Um, I don't worry about injuring a snake, which I've never done anyway. Um, and for me, it's almost, you know, they're foul-proof. Um, and the way I set up my incubator, the way I do my egg boxes, the way I cut my eggs, is idiot-proof. You know, it's easy. And for me, if anything was to happen, that I was going to hurt the baby with a razor blade, you know, if I put it next to them, I don't think I'd forgive myself. I think I could have done that a lot more safely, a lot more easier with less stress, less worry, less hassle. Just using those little blunt scissors really do make a difference. And then I guess keeping on the subject of eggs, it's become an, another thing now that, uh, you know, if you have one egg that's moldy in the clutch and it's stuck to the rest of the clutch, you know, some people are now saying just keep it on there. It won't spread to the other eggs. When when I was coming up, every every one of the big breeders said you separate that egg because it could spread to the other eggs. Um, do you have any opinions on that? I, I, you know, I do both. So if the egg is in the egg box and all the eggs are separated and I'm able to take it out, I'll take it out. If the egg is attached to a clump of eggs, I will at least try to separate them. Um, but if I can't, then what I will do, I will monitor that clutch 
and I will keep an eye on it. And if it is, and if it does look like it is spreading, then obviously I will pull that egg apart. Um, so we, that one is is a two sided sort of question. Sometimes I leave them in, sometimes I separate them and get rid of them. It just depends on how the clutch is and, and whether or not there's different types of mold. You can have a, a baby, um, an embryo or an egg go bad and it, it just stays to that one egg. And then you can have the exterior of that egg start to produce mold, which may go onto the other eggs. Which then you've got to start, you know, trying to intervene, separate them, do whatever. Um, but for me, it's more of a visualization. Look at it, make an assessment, and then just 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 see how you get on with that. You know. Yeah, and that's something that I reached out to to our friend Dr. Travis Wyman, who just knows everything about everything, and yeah, he's like, hey. He's like, hey, shine a flashlight on it. Turn the lights off. If it glows green, it will be this kind of fungus or mold. <laughs> like, I don't know, man. I'm just going to separate it, and then uh, we'll go from there. But it seems like you have kind of the same ideas. You kind of have a feel after doing it for a certain amount of time. Yeah, and, and that's experience. I mean, Travis Wiseman, um, I've never spoken to the guy, but the guy is, is like, he's clever beyond, you know, beyond, way beyond me. Um, I'm more of a keep it simple type of guy, you know. I love to hear when he talks about genetics and, you know, all, all that sort of things um, and and cells and all that sort of stuff. But for me, it's more of a feel, you know, you're looking at the egg, you're trying to see what's what and you, you sort of have a go and you try and think, oh, yeah, should I, should I? And I was speaking to him today, but the guy said, you know, I don't want to lose this snake you know, but I'm worried about doing something. And it seems like this, this female may have a twisted overduct or some eggs congealed together, stuck. And and I sort of, I, I'm one of these people where I'd rather try and fail and not to have tried at all. Um, because certainly, you know, if I could have, if I look back and go, I could have saved that animal if I'd have just done this. For me, that would be a real kick in the um, in the balls, so to say, um, if, uh, I've, if I didn't do it. Now, experience goes a long way, so you can try and – you know as well as I do, probably you've had more experience than me um, with colubrids when you've got to uh, sort of go through the belly and into the egg and draw out the fluid of, of the egg just to get the egg to pass through. Um, Kevin over at Nerd – did an awesome video on um, a female with a stuck egg or a bad egg inside her, and he basically punched it with a syringe, pulled out the excess fluid, and was able to push the, the bad egg out. That's something that I wouldn't advise anyone to try. You you know, get someone to show you or watch someone do it. You know, learn. Um, but for me, I'm one of these people where I'd rather try and fail and not to have tried at all. You know. Uh, and that's how a lot of the times I've learned stuff, you know, through my, my own mistakes or or n not making mistakes, let's say, or finding something that works. Um, so certainly um, it's good to be in that, that sort of, you know, have that mindset, you know. Yeah, if you're lucky enough, you learn from other people's mistakes, but sometimes you got to make them yourself. But on the on the side of like home remedies and stuff like that, are you – you know, doing a lot of your own stuff as far as, you know, 
respiratory, bump the heat, humidity, that kind of stuff? Or are you always going to a vet for things? What's kind of the balance there? So I'm kind of lucky because um, I have uh, a contact who's a reptile vet and he he's um, very open with me. However, we have to bear in mind they are licensed and they have to follow guidelines. Yeah. However, um, there's a lot of home remedies out there which work the same or if not better than antibiotics uh, for stuff like respiratories. And, and sometimes it's about knowing the species. So all pythons are very stressful animals. The stress levels go high, their immune system drops, they're more likely to get a respiratory. Um, so if we look at that, we say, right, most snakes, not all pythons got a, res a respiratory problem. Right, okay, what we're going to do? Well, we're going to take it out of its enclosure, we're going to inject it with an antibiotic that is 50-50 whether or not it's going to work. Um, and we're also as well going to use a nebulizer and nebulize it for 20 minutes twice a day. Okay, do you not think that's going to stress that animal out? Do you not think you're not bringing that stress level down? You're actually keeping it elevated so their immune system doesn't get a chance to uh, recover. The way I look at it is a snake's metabolism is 10 times slower than ours. You know? So for them to get over a respiratory takes time. We take a week to get over a cold. For them, they could take six months. Certainly what I've learned is the less stress you give that animal, the better it will get, or the quicker it will get better. Um, so for me, um, and the vet in question who I speak to, he sort of openly said to me, it's a 50-50 if antibiotics work, whether it be Fortrum uh, or any of the others, it's a 50-50. We know it, it sort of kills the... Um, or helps kill the bacteria, um, but and, and we all know that when you nebulize a snake, you know, it's ingesting through the lung uh, the antibacterial the F10, um, and it's going to kill and help kill the bacteria on the lungs. The problem I have with that is, so if you're doing it 20 minutes a day, once or twice a day, what about the rest of the hours? What about you know, the, the 23 hours, other 23 hours of the day that it's not being nebulized. Is that giving the chance for the bacteria to grow back? And again, we're taking the snake out of it, an enclosure, putting it into a smaller tub, nebulizing it. doesn't know what's going on. Really high stress level. Then it's going back in. So what I try to do, and what I've found that works, is I use a solution. Obviously, the snake is quarantined. The, the temperatures are turned up higher than normal. So the hotspot would be around about 93, 90, yeah, 92, 93 Fahrenheit. And what I do, I keep the humidity between um, 80 and 100% with a, um, and I'll use like an, an antibacterial solution um, mixed with water. Okay, so that goes in in the bedding. So constantly, as they're breathing and they're in their enclosure and they're not being pulled out, that humidity is high. 
the heat is high and they're, in, they're breathing in the, um, the uh, solution as a gas. And it, for 24 hours of that day, that animal, if you like, is being nebulized because the, the, it's taking in that antibacterial and it's helping to clear the lungs. So home remedies, there's a lot to say in a positive way. Um, and I certainly, what I've learned and to quickly learn is when you do start breeding or keeping you do have to have like an emergency kit like ready and you have to be ready for anything really, you know, egg-bound females, you know, males gone off food, um, you know, mites, um, uh, respiratory you know, infections, you, you kind of become like a mini vet, a uh, mini reptile vet in so many cases. Yeah, much like farmers have to learn their own home procedures for their cows and whatnot, we need to be at least basically competent to uh, take care of some of the the normal issues that face us, you know, year after year sometimes. Yeah, sure. And there's a lot of issues out there that can come along. And again, this is all educating educating people and saying look breeding is so fantastic you know producing babies is absolutely awesome you just need to be prepared you know and i have met so many amazing people in this hobby that a lot of them are close friends and you know most of them are in the, in the us you know we speak on a regular basis certainly when i go over to tinley when we speak on the phone to a lot of people over there they're like like I've spoke to them last week, you know, there's so many good people in this hobby um, and so many amazing uh, opportunities um, that it's, uh, I can't see, I can't see myself being without it. Um, it's, uh, it's amazing. So all the, the downside of things, it's not, not negative, it's just us trying to pre-warn people. Be clever, think about it. You're going to have an amazing time. Um, but be prepared for the uh... talking about like being prepared in in the U.S. We have things, especially in Morelia, it's big, but it's also I think more common in ball pythons than people like to admit. But uh, we have nidovirus. Have you seen anything like that over in the U.K.? Um, not personally, no. Um... There's, I've, I've, I was made aware of it about three years ago. Um, it's something I've not come across, so I can't really comment. Um, it's something that I think I, it, it's sometimes we need to be careful. So, for example, you can have someone. Let's say you find a few um, spots on your body. Some we used to think back in the day, oh, I've got chicken pox or I've got measles or you know. But nowadays, people think, oh my god, it, it, it's the worst case. Uh, it's meningitis or you know. Sometimes we can um, we can we can make things bigger than what they are. So for me, I would also always say to people, you know, look, before you start looking at the worst or the least case, just get yourself to the vets, get themselves, get the snakes, you know, obviously checked over, get, get them 
check correctly. Um, and then once you know what, what's going on with the snake, then you can obviously go from there. Um, for me, I don't know too much about that here in the UK, whether breeders have kept it under wraps, whether, I don't know. I don't know, but I have sort of done a little bit of research on it, but I've not seen much of that here in the UK. Yeah, and I think it's it's important to acknowledge the fact that, like we said earlier, this used to be a very, very closed system as far as knowledge goes. People used to hold on to their knowledge, but now we are much more open. So I hope that we can continue and people who are facing issues can continue to be open with them and you know to help the hobby as a whole. Sure. I mean, back in the day, again, don't e- even now you'll see a lot of big breeders who won't put out um, the bad side of it, let's say, um, or the negative side or the, the downside of things. And I do think they don't put that out because they don't want to portray themselves uh, in a certain light. Well, me, if you get that, if you say, hey, he had a six snake, a lot of people will say that guy has six snakes, let's not buy from him. So, I mean, there's probably a good reason for them not to talk. Exactly, exactly. And let's face it, you know, I dare say everyone who's listening to this has come across mites, come across respiratories, females or males that have died, you know, issues with eggs, egg-bound females. You know, I certainly have, and I feel that, for those people who say, yeah, I've been keeping snakes for over 10 years and I've never had a problem, then they, I don't believe, you know, they're keeping, yeah, I find that hard to believe if they've got 100 snakes that have never come across a problem, you know. Um, so it is out there, you know, other breeders, even simple things like breeders selling the same snake twice, you know, they've sold it, they've missold it to two people or they've sold an animal and it's died and they haven't put it out or they've mis, you know, misidentified a snake or missexed the snake and they haven't told people. We all mess up. We all make mistakes. It's how you deal with that mistake. You know, you know, if I've missold an animal and it's the wrong sex, the wrong combo, that's fine. Here, what, you want, what, what can I do to put it right? You know, it happens. Um, like I said, it's, we, all, we all mess up. It's just how you deal with it that I think will put you in good stead. It's it's when the rumours get out and you deny it and you try to hide it and no 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 that's not what happened you know nothing that's never happened to me da 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 um, that's when you can you know you can start to to have issues but yeah I think being it, it's worked for me so far being being transparent has never put anyone off I don't believe. You know, if anything, people have come to me because I'm more honest and open. Um, for example, I had someone put a deposit on a snake. The snake itself isn't doing too good. So I've offered for the deposit, you know, to give them the deposit back. Um, that snake will stay with me until I'm 100% happy. Um, and she's decided that not to take the deposit. She's thanked me for being honest and open. And she said, you know, what else have you got? So I had, I've only got a few more snakes left. I showed her. And she actually ended up buying a more expensive snake. So with me being honest and upfront, she appreciated that. She's gone, right, no. Um, can I have this one instead? It's more money. And, and I said, yeah, no, not a problem. And she's thanked me for being honest and upfront. Well, I know some, some breeders would just sell that animal. 
um, and not, oh, yeah, you know, he's feeling fine when I had it, you know, all that, when really, no, actually, I'm having to assist feeding. So I don't want you to have that animal. It looks like it's going to have to be assist-fed the majority of its life. It may have to stop me for that long. That's fine. However, I don't believe it's the right snake for you, you know, and she's been very, uh, she was very thankful that I was honest and open with her. So I think being transparent goes a long way. Absolutely. And there's, there's a little bit, uh, the sub topic that we talked about before the show, but basically the, the different tribes within the reptile community. Can you talk a little bit because like ball Python people seem to be in their own place as well as it's pretty much ball Python people and everyone else. It seems like sometimes because the ball Python is probably the predominant group, at least here in the U S but, uh, talk a little bit about, uh, the different tribes and how we can not be assholes to each other, essentially. Yeah. Well, if you listen to me talking, I'm talking about this hobby. I'm not talking about ball pythons. I'm talking about all of us, you know, like I've said, I've kept other species, um, I certainly keep other species. I want to keep other species. Um, for me, um, you do get people who segregate themselves, who think it's a bit like having certain football teams. You know, it's like my football team's better than yours. When in actual fact, the, it depends on the person. So for me, every animal, I can sit here and watch the animal planet and be amazed by jellyfish. You know, um, for me, I can walk past the table at a reptile show and be amazed by spiders or insects. And, you know, so I think that comes down to the, the people themselves. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't see, you know, I have a lot of people who have boas who watch my channel who, you know, have never ever had or kept a ball python. One of those guys will come and chat to me at my table. He'll talk to me. I'll ask him. Um, but yeah, it is. It can be can come across quite segregated sometimes. Um, but certainly for me, you know, and there's a lot of other python breeders out there who do keep other species, who do admire other species, um, uh, and, and maybe maybe the ball python thing came around when bull pythons were big money, you know, when you're talking $50,000 for a scaleless head, $50,000 for a sunset, $50,000 for, back in the day, I think um, I think the spiders were something like $25,000, you know, and the bumblebee was $50,000. Um, maybe that's where the segregation came from. You know, I mean, corn snakes had a massive influx not too long ago with the corn meadows um, mutation. Um, that was an expensive corn snake, you know, um, and, and that sort of that brought corn snakes back into the limelight. Let's say, uh, not knocking corn snakes, I love them. One of my first snakes was, um, but I think I think the money aspects had a lot to do with every, you know, the ball pythons. There's a lot of people who weren't ball python people or snake people, let's say, all of a sudden invested money and started uh, making money off ball pythons. So maybe that's where it came from. 
Yeah, I think uh, I think a stereotype was built up of the fact that ball python people weren't exactly snake people. They were just into money, breeding the animal, selling the animal. But I think now that the market is leveling off and everything's calming down, I feel like we should uh, maybe chip away at that a little bit more and and realize that we are much more alike than we are different. Oh, for sure, because at the end of the day, you know, log. <laughs> Well, again, not too long ago, all all our rights, when I say all our rights, I mean that's us as a reptile community, whether that be in Europe, in the UK, in the States, in Canada, anywhere in the world, once a government or once a governing body starts to take away our rights to keep our animals, it's not going to affect just one little island like the UK. It's going to affect Europe. It's going to spread over into the States. It's going to go into Canada. It's going to go into everywhere, you, you know, everywhere we we are as reptile or animal people, it's going to affect us. So we, when we're trying to do things and, and be, again, this comes back to educating people. If we can educate people on how to keep their animals correctly, what to buy, what's going to suit them, Ball python may not suit you, but a corn snake may suit you. Um, you know, a, 20, a, a big reticulated, 20-foot reticulated python is not going to suit someone in a, in a small apartment. Um, you, you know, if we can educate people into having the right animals and the right care, then we're not going to put ourselves in the limelight for the government to look at us and go, hang on a minute, we've got an invasive species in our, in our uh, area, and that's because people have been releasing you know, um, and it, all that sort of thing as a community, you know, we should all stand together. And again, it doesn't matter whether we're overseas from each other. We all need to aim for the same goal, educate people, help people, make, you know, let people know that we are um, responsible breeders and we will help people in the right way uh, as opposed to just selling animals and making money. And that goes for all, all, everything across, you know, across the board species-wise. You know? Now, you know that I can't let you say the word legislation without talking about IHS and the rules that have been put down. So can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, something like, I believe you can't have them like two days in a row exhibited or you have to have enclosures or a certain size when you're exhibiting animals at a show or what are the rules? Oh. Okay, let's let's look at the UK. The UK is different from Europe. Um, there's certain countries in Europe, like in Germany, they're not allowed to keep ball pythons in rack systems. However, rack systems for ball pythons are absolutely a must. Uh, in the UK, we don't have any issues with that, but the IHS, they operate and run the four shows a year here in the UK, and they are banned... Um, three, I believe, three species of animal with neurological issues. Now, if we're going to talk ball pythons, they've banned the spider ball python at their show. And a lot of people thought it was banned in the UK, but it wasn't. It was only banned um, at the show. Um, so the the, the show decided to ban the, the sale of the spider ball python. Um, what, what made me laugh was 
I am I am an IHS member, and you have to be an IHS member to uh, attend the shows, or you did have to be, let's say. And as a member, I would thought that they would have approached the members and got uh, a vote off the members and said, right, guys, this is what we're proposing. These are the reasons. This is the evidence we have. Who's for, who's against. And we could have come up with a system, and don't get me wrong, ill animals regarding neurological issues aren't just a problem. Animals with mites, respiratories, um, animals being sold just out of the egg, and they're saying they've had a, you know five feeds, or you know we, we have other issues regarding the neurological issue that we can all that needs addressing. So for me, I would have thought coming up with a system where the breeder has a three strike and he's out type of situation where he could go right, okay. This is the third time I've saw an animal on your table with an issue. You're banned, you know, um, or, you know, anything anything simple like that. Um, they just chose to go out and ban it uh, and the other two species as well. Um, and, and listen, if people don't want to breed an animal with neurological issues, that's fine. Don't breed it. That's that's completely fine. And us being um, um, responsible breeders, for me, if I have a snake that's got a neurological issue, I will not breed from it. Luckily, I don't have anything like that in my collection. I had a female cinnamon, uh, which kept giving me pathogenesis, pathogenesis clutches. If that's come across, struggling saying it, pathogenesis. Yeah, uh, clutches. I stopped breeding her after the second clutch, and I realised that this was an issue with her. So I sold her as a pet, a pure pet, to go to school. Um, she's living comfortably as a pet. She's happy as Larry. So it's not just the spider we have issues with and neurological issues with. I think as responsible breeders, we need to be responsible for everything that we work with and everything that we look after and what have you. For me, I just felt like they could have handled the whole situation a lot better. Um, and, um, yeah, it... it I put a, I got I think I had over five hundred signatures on a um, on a, uh, a petition, and uh, I handed it over to them. And I was kind of hoping for a bit of a, an email back, maybe something where someone said, "Okay, let's relook at this issue." You know, phone me up. Maybe let's talk about ways we can monitor this and you know, get away without banning it but maybe be more responsible um, and nothing came of it. So maybe that petition fell on deaf ears. I don't know, but the, the situation is we need to come up with data. And they said they had hard evidence and hard data that, that these animals was, you know, and, and we just never saw the data. And so, is there, is there anyone in your corner for this, you know, representing breeders in the UK? Um, you know, I'm kind not, of like a U.S. arc would be here. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't believe there is. 
Um, however, in the UK, we're, we're nowhere near as big as in the States. Um, and certainly um, we have different organisations which look after animal welfare. Um, but it's like going back and talking about, well, a snake shouldn't be in a drawer. A snake should be in a big viv, places to roam and hide and a big open viv. But you and I both know that the certain species of animals that don't like to roam, they like tight corners or tight spaces to, to live in that. And, and, and so when you have organizations that look after animal welfare, they need to look at, after each species individually. Like there's different birds who live in different areas, that live in different conditions, the same with reptiles. You know, um, so sometimes when you breed snakes, it can get put into the mainstream that this is a snake, it's not a ball python or a corn snake or a reticulated python or a boa. All, all of them are different species. They all need different types of living environments. Unfortunately, they all come under one. You know, it's a snake. It should be in a four-foot bib. It doesn't work that way for all pythons. They live underground. They're nocturnal. They like those tight, small spaces. They're not a, a hunting predator. They're more of a, an ambush predator, if you like. They like to wait. You know, they won't go hunting for the prey. Um, they certainly won't stalk a prey. So there's different organisations out there that will have the animal welfare at heart, but they won't look at a species for its individualness, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, yeah. They're painting with a broad brush because they're not just working with snakes. They're also working with the welfare of every other pet that's kept. Sure. And, you know, again, it's educating people. Again, coming back, educate people. Educate, educate. And if we as breeders can educate and be responsible, then eventually the word will get out there and people will come to us. And certainly my reptile vet will come to me and he'll say, Gav, you've got more experiences with ball pythons. Have you ever come across this? And that's someone who's a professional in his in his trade who's coming to me because I'm a specialist in ball pythons, in breeding and keeping ball pythons. Um, so he's not narrow-minded. He, you know, he thinks outside the box and he'll bounce questions at me and I'll bounce questions at him. And uh, that's a good way to be, you know. Um, certainly a good thing. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, in the hobby and whatnot, there's breeders that have really proven themselves that they're responsible like yourself and therefore someone like a vet or someone with a traditional education will give you the leeway and your opinion and give you you know a say in the matter of everything that's going on and respect your opinion sure and and that's that, that's again like i said anything else i mean um kevin mccurley over at nerd you know he's kept a lot of different species and for me he's a very very clever man uh, what he knows, uh, you know, his videos at the moment have become very helpful and he's showing a lot of uh, good techniques, helpful techniques. Um, and, you know, I, I think the, there's a lot of people out there and Kevin's certainly done a lot of fighting in the courts from what I've seen for people, for the US ARC side of things. And, uh, you know, like I said, if we as breeders, as small as we are, can be responsible and educate people, I think that will help.
You know, we haven't got to put thousands of dollars or pounds into an organization, even though it helps massively. But if we can, if if we can't afford to do that, which a lot of us can't, but maybe we can do something else by educating people, like I said, and helping people do things correctly, you know? Yeah. And I don't know if it's just like the American way that we need to have an organization to fight for us against everything, but it just, it scares me that you guys are, like you said, self-admittedly like smaller and therefore it seems like you can be pushed around a lot easier. Yeah. Um, I mean, we are smaller, but I think, I think like I said, um, over, for example, feeding live, you know, in the UK, it's frowned upon. Um, over in the States, it's nothing, you know, it's like, yeah, feed live, not a problem. Over here, we have to justify why I'm giving that animal live food. That animal is having live food because it will not eat frozen thawed. I've tried everything. I've got everything. I've, it will not eat frozen thawed. Um, I can justify that, you know. Um, and again, those videos where you see some people posting feeding videos of live rodents to snakes, that's not helping our, our community, whether it be ball pythons, uh, poisonous, um, venomous snakes, glubrids, whatever. It makes no, it makes no difference. It's still not, it's not helping. We all know that snakes kill rodents. We can see it on documentaries, you know, all that sort of stuff. We don't need to do it on YouTube. And there's quite a few channels on YouTube which do show live feeding. And, again, there's nothing wrong in that. But, again, like we were saying before, sometimes you've got to be mindful how you're doing something. So if you're going to do it in an educational way, fine. If you're going to do it where you're going to sort of jazz it up, like, yeah, my my 20-foot my ball pot, uh, my 20-foot reticulated python kills a rabbit, you know, it, it's not doing our industry or our hobby any favors, you know. And on the, the live feeding aspect, at least from my limited experience breeding ball pythons, I mean, it seemed like live was kind of an essential part of the process as far as, uh, yeah, yeah, not, not many animals are going to go right on the frozen thaw. Now it happens more often probably now than it did before, but so many animals need to be started on live. So um, do you breed your own rodents? Yes, I do, and I'll tell you now. I've probably got a hundred. No, I've probably got about 200, 200 bull pythons at the moment, and there's only probably five adults which eat live. Um, I start off. I, I offer my hatchlings frozen thawed, but nine times out of ten, they will take one live and then the rest will go straight on to frozen thawed. Um, back in the day, yes, we used to feed live because we were keeping them wrong. And when I mean keeping them wrong, I mean we had them probably in too much of a bigger enclosure, so they were feeling very nervous. And again, they're a very scared snake, so you have to embed that trust issue. So you have to, believe it or not, they, they have to trust you. And when you open the tub, and you dangle something in front of the face, you know, it's going to put them off. So trust is a big thing. Having the enclosure is correct. And many times people have, have got in contact with me saying, you know, my ball python won't feed. What do I do? The first thing I say, send me a picture of how it's set up. Nine times out of ten, the enclosure is wrong. We readjust that and make some, 
some minor adjustments, and the next minute you know, within three days, the snake is feeding. It's not a problem with the snake or the prey. The problem lies within the housing and the husbandry. Again, education, showing people, teaching people, you know. And how do you how do you get past the noise as far as there's plenty of, of pet tubers that will go out there and tell you to put it in an exoterra with a bonsai tree in it and everything like that. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure it works works for some people, but how do you get them to, you know, the whole to be on your side as far as uh, there's a lot of things going on that speak on the contrary? Yeah, I mean, it's proof's in the pudding. Proof is in data. If you can prove your argument with hard evidence, then they can't come back at you with anything different. You know, like I said, I've got about 200 snakes. The majority of them feed on frozen thawed. Their enclosures set up. They feed. They breed. They're happy. I can tell you from my data when we used to keep them in vivariums, feeding was an issue and breeding was an issue. So, and now we've got their uh, husbandry dialed in, we can actually, the, the snakes are a lot happier. They're feeding. I mean, my snakes, my bull pythons would feed every day. If you could, if you offered them food every day, they would eat every day. And that's a sign of a, of a good snake, a healthy snake, a happy snake. Their, their enclosure is, their husbandry is spot on. Right. And then, so obviously the, the markers you're using to determine the health of the snake would be that it's feeding properly and then reproducing. Yes. I mean, for me, like I said, when a, when a snake, I mean, <laughs> colubrids can eat every hour if you let them, you know, they're, 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 they're like dustbins sometimes. A bull python, as we know, has always been a picky feeder. Um, so when I see my snakes, at their tub every night, around about the same time, at the front of the tub, wanting food. Like I said, to me, they just want feeding. And you know, I'll feed I'll feed over three nights or separate my collection down over three nights. And those three nights, even though I fed that one rack yesterday, tonight it'll want feeding again because it's like, well, I want some food. So how can we have an animal that's meant to be a picky feeder all of a sudden go into feeding in such a, a consistent way? And the only thing I can put that down to is that their husbandry, the temperatures, the humidity, their enclosure, they're happy with. Them. So that for me is my data. Like I said, that proves for me that I'm doing it right. You know, I've kept them in vivariums. I've been hit and miss with the food. Um, and uh, yeah, certainly now they feed like bones because we've got their 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 husbandry dog. But I'm sure you get like messages like like we do that someone just got a a ball python from say insert pet store here. I don't know if you guys have big box stores over there or what you're working with, but and those that animal's probably never been established on feeding. You know, it's probably out of the egg and then wholesaled off. So how do you kind of, are people allowed to, you know, you're saying, hey, this is a baby, it's probably never established. You need to feed it a live mouse at this point, a hopper mouse or something. I mean, how do you do that legally over there? How do you prove that it's necessary? 
pet stores have a um, certain rules and regulations and guidelines that they have to follow. Um, they certainly have to put make sure that the animal's health. Uh, before they sell it, you know, they put the animal's health over the sale of the animal first. Um, and and this is, again, where education comes in, you know, teaching people, asking the right questions, researching. Um, and certainly with me, I won't let an animal go unless it's feeding correctly. Now, most of the time, that's normally after five food, uh, five, five prey items, um, but sometimes, again, I want that good response, you know, that, that quick, sharp response. And if you go to a pet store, um, you want to make sure that you're asking those right questions. Is it feeding weekly? What's it feeding on? Have you got a feeding record? You know, and if the answers to them is no, it's not feeding regular. We don't know what it's feeding on. Um, we're struggling to get it feeding. We don't have any records then it's simple, just walk away. You know, there's plenty of good breeders out there. You haven't got to go to a pet store um, and, and buy one there and then. Just go and do your research and, and just find someone that can give you the answers. And again, that all comes down to educating people. For sure. So it seems like every, everything is just a matter of education. But as far as well, the, the uh, shows go, are there a lot, of, a lot of people getting their first pet from shows or is it more pet stores? So, so with the shows in the UK, it's meant to be a breeders' meeting. So we can't sell pets. Uh, if you want to sell pets, you've got to have a pet license. Wait a so, so all these shows are particularly for breed, like a breeder swap in a way? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, they've opened it now to public, um, but that's why they're called breeders' meetings. Because potentially we're not selling pets. Uh, we're selling... Uh, we're, 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 we are selling the offspring that we don't need for our projects. Uh, so, yeah, very much similar to a, a breeder's swap, if you like. But now um, they have started to realize that we can sell animals to first-time hobbies. So you could have someone who's into dart frogs who wants a bull python, um, you know, they are a breeder of some type, you know. Uh, they breed dart frogs, not bull pythons. So, again, if you want to sell pets, and this is where the wording of something comes in, um, if you're selling a pet, then you have to have a pet license, a pet shop license to sell that animal. And how do you qualify to get something like that? Uh, you have to go through your local authority or your local council and speak to the animal welfare officer there and then obviously follow their procedures what you need what you've got to do you have to declare that you are a uh, business and you need a pet shop license to sell your animals as pets for me um i just sell um to other breeders other people who you know want to get into breeding um they have established themselves as a breeder or as a hobbyist breeder, should I say, um, and then go from there. Because there's another key word, hobby. Yeah. Well, is this a hobby or is this a business? I guess that's a question. For me, for me, it's a hobby. It's a hobbyist. It's a. I'm a hobbyist breeder because I don't do this to pay my bills. I do this because I enjoy it. Um, I love doing it. Um, I don't depend on the selling of animals to to pay for my house or my bills so for me it's uh it's a yeah it's a 
it's a hobby for sure, for sure. Yeah, and taking it from from that perspective of a hobby, are you still interested? I mean, you you must be still interested at least covering your your feed bills and stuff like that. Sure. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, um, I've probably put more of my own money into this than I have made money, which is fine because, like I said, it's a hobby. Um, you know, I'm, it's a hobby. But if I can just cover my my outgoings, then I'm happy. You know, I I I, I probably still spend. I probably spend a lot of my own money in this hobby than I do making the money. Um, but it's a hobby. I love doing it, so I don't mind. You know, um, so it is. Yeah. Do you still, I know a lot of people getting into it like I did. I mean, I had like the investors mentality that this is going to be an investment. Do you still look at it that way? Uh, yeah, sometimes I can. Yeah. Um, I look at it as in, um, like for example, the scaleless head, uh, making a scaleless snake. Uh, for me, it's not, it's not what I want to do. It's not something I'm interested in. So if I was to fork out, big money for that animal um, that wouldn't be very sensible because it's not something I'm passionate about. I like the look of the scaleless head animals and how they look. Um, but there is a lot of controversy around an animal being scaleless that's meant to have scales, you know, um, but that's a, uh, Listen, we haven't got time to get into that one. That one's a whole other debate. Um, but for me, I only um, I want to be excited in the project that I'm in. So I look at it as not as a financial investment, more of a, uh, a time and effort investment, if that makes sense. You know, I'm going to put my time and effort into this project. That's my investment, not so much the money side of things. Yeah, and it seems like obviously you have long time or long term projects and long term things that you have thought out to where it's an investment that you're getting not just to get a return back, but to get your project moved farther along in a in a certain sense. Sure, and again, like I said, you know, you for me it's about you know I can yes I've I've got a project let's say. But I can't tell you where that project's going to end because I don't see the end of it. It's like if you want to make an albino, that's where your project ends. You get two het albinos, you breed them together to make that albino. But for me, it's not the albino isn't where I want to stop. If you know, using that as a metaphor, I don't want to. I don't just want to stop at the albino. I want to make other combinations. Where can I go from here? Can I put another recessive in there? Could I make this? Could I make that? So for me, a project, um, I don't see the end of it because there's so much more I want to do with each and every single one of my projects that I've got going on at the moment. I just don't see the end of that project. And it seems like you guys are just thinking further ahead now. I mean, you, in the beginning, it was put, you know, incomplete dominant, incomplete dominant, make as many visuals as you can, as much as you can. But now it has shifted to everyone's working with recessives. Yeah, yes and no. Um, you can't have one without the other. So in other words, you can't have a recessive. It's brilliant to have a recessive because that's that puts the longevity in it. But you also want to have the incomplete or the co-dominance or the dominant gene in there to make that recessive look different. 
So for me, the the incomplete or the co-dominant, whatever we want to call it, uh, the dominant and the recessive genes are all on the same level. You can't really, it's difficult to make one without having the others involved, you know? Yeah, yeah, because eventually you're your spot nose clown you need spot nose in there or else you just have a clown i mean you gotta at least take some with the other exactly and and there's a, a good prime example you know a spot nose clown looks amazing a clown looks amazing a spot nose looks amazing however the, the spot nose clown is is like the pinnacle if you like of those two but you can't have a spot nose clown without having the spot nose and the clown. So you need both, you know? So there's a, a real good example right there. I also want to speak to the amount of vision that, I mean, especially in that case, someone like Justin Kabelka has bringing these, like these morphs out of, you know, the rubble in a sense, you know, from back in the day and bringing them into and bring, making them new again. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's just, that's Justin who's one of those guys who thinks outside the box. Um, and Justin has been able to think outside the box and bring a lot of older genes, like you said, dust them off, bring them to the forefront again, which is absolutely awesome. Um, and for me, um, I'm one of these people where I like to think out the box. It's just Justin's that far ahead of everyone that I don't think anyone's going to catch up. And Justin's always got something up his sleeve, bless him. And uh, it, it's fantastic that, you know, it's reviving stuff, you know, it's, we used to look for brand new genes and, and, you know, find those genes from Africa. Now we're actually seeing the power of them older genes be put to, to amazing, into amazing combos and just blow us away. And, and like I said before, simple genes, simple combinations, quality, you won't, you won't go wrong. And we're, and we're talking about, you know, the most basic morphs, you know, your, your pides, your clowns, your albinos, those are animals that have been in the hobby. I mean, almost since the beginning before, you know? Yeah, definitely. And again, something else, which we still keep working with, you know, those old genes keep coming back um, because we just, you, there's, there's no limit. There's no limit to the combinations and what we can do. And just when we think we've got to close to the finishing stage, Justin or Ozzy brings some, something else out and he just blows us out of the water and we just go, okay, now we've got something else to aim for, you know? It's just crazy. So, um, yeah, for me, for me, uh, people like Justin, Ozzy, Mark, Marcus, Jane, Reptiles, um, just keep blowing me away with, with combinations. And a lot of the times it's easy. It, it's simple, older genes that we've kind of forgotten about. You know? So, Well, I, was it because like people were seeing that once you stack five genes on, it was kind of a diminishing return and that's why it went back to simplicity? Yeah, or, or maybe people were looking for the next big snake with big money. So in other words, they've produced so many spot noses or so many clowns. Right, okay, what's the next big gene? Oh, there's GHI, there's banana, there's there's this, there's that. And all of a sudden, everyone's chasing the next big gene so or the big money gene. So we've kind of left making those combos because we want to go after that big gene, that, you know, that sunset or that scaleless head or the puzzle, you know, um, we've kind of forgot there's more to do with 
with the old genes because we're chasing the newer stuff, you know, maybe, maybe that's what. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to see if I worked with ball pythons, I'd do like tri stripes or something that I haven't seen in a while. Yeah. There you go. Tri stripes. There's another one. Um, I'm not a striped animal fan, um, but the tri stripe, you don't see much stuff done with that whatsoever. Um, you know, and it's a beautiful, awesome animal. Uh, again, not much to be done. Someone, does someone make a, a spot nose trash stripe for me. I don't know if it's been done. Yeah, that'd be real crazy, real strange. Um, and again, it just shows you how quick things can change. When we were, uh, people were looking at clowns and they were looking for the most reduced pattern clown they could find. And then Justin comes out with some stuff that's got spot nose in this, that, and the other. And people, you know, the Batman and, and what have you, and people just go crazy. And now it's spot no, you know, we want the most busiest clown that we can find and make and produce. And, and busy patterns now are the thing. I dare say, given another couple of years, there'll be something else where it's, like we said, try stripe or there'll be something else going on where we want to reduce the pattern or introduce something else. But that's the most, that's the good thing about this hobby, you know, there's always something to do. And I think what's what's funny is if I remember correctly, like spot nose was the first morph that really took a giant dive and people lost uh, lost hope in, and then they dumped it, and then yeah, and then it came it came back. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, there's been a few like that through through the through the years, um, but there's been a lot of there's only been one or two that's been highlighted that have seriously had a massive depreciation, let's say, in value. Um, but for me, you know, um, I I was speaking to Ben Rennick uh, before, I think it was the week before he got shot. Um, I was speaking to him about some spot nose clowns and, um, yeah, um, and then obviously kind of just after that, I think Justin brought out some spot nose clown stuff and that just blew the spot nose clown stuff completely into the limelight, you know? Yeah, it's kind of because I know Ben Rennick was, even though people weren't into it at the time, he was still pumping it to a lot of stuff. And it's funny how just, I guess, Justin's marketing hit it at the right time. And now yeah. it's a giant thing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Ben Rennick was, you know, at one point he couldn't sell spot noses. So he was keeping them back and breeding them. Um, and I dare some say now, um, like I said, Justin's marketing and what have you, you know, he certainly wouldn't have an issue. If he had spot nose head clowns and spot nose clowns, he would not have an issue shifting them. Um, but, you know, everything happens for a reason. And uh, it's very sad what happened to Ben. But, uh, you, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's one of them. But, uh, yeah, projects projects and the industry and all that jazz it's it's really uh it's it's an awesome place to be in you know we've spoken a lot about what to prepare people for but you know for me i wouldn't if someone wanted to get into it i'd say research and you will love it mm -hmm. so. and is there anything that you look forward to in your business whether it be projects or things coming down the pike yeah, everything. <laughs> I look forward to everything that I'm breeding, everything that's going to come along, everything really. I'm just so excited with everything. But um, but yeah, I just I'm just I'm just buzzing about it all. I constantly feel every year 
you know, every year is exciting, you know. I'm excited about every project that I'm working with. And I just want people out there just to feel that excitement and just to get excited as well. Any projects that you can't currently be in that you want to get into in the future? Uh, yeah, puzzle. Um, I want to get into puzzle. Um, um, I was going to pull the trigger this year, um, but I'm going to hold back for a little bit. Um, probably next year I'll probably get into that. Um, but yeah, puzzle is something I want to get into for sure. Sweet. And Gavin, I thank you for being on. It's been so long since I uh, I forgot all this stuff about like the ball python industry. And quite yeah. frankly, it is just fascinating to talk about. No, that's, uh, that's okay. I mean, uh, it's been, thanks for having me on. I mean, I love doing these sort of things. And to be honest with you, I could chat for hours and hours about snakes. I'll probably bore most people, but I could talk for hours and hours. Um, but um but yeah, thank you for having me on, Joe. It's been uh, absolutely awesome. Thank you. Of, of course. And where can people find you on, whether it's social media, website, all that stuff? Okay, yeah. Obviously, they can find me on YouTube, Balls to You. Just just quickly, just drop that in the search bar or pop up. Instagram is Balls to You 2014, because that's when I started up my Instagram page. Um, and yeah. There's um, on the videos, you've got the links in the description boxes below for emails, contact details, all that sort of stuff, but predominantly on YouTube and Instagram for sure. All right, guys, please check him out wherever he is. Definitely his YouTube channel. If you're into ball pythons, you, you're probably already subscribed. So for us, Port City Pythons, Instagram, Port City Pythons, YouTube, portcitypythons.com. We have babies available, all that good stuff. Other than that, we will catch you guys next week. And Gavin, thanks for being on. Hey, thanks, Joe. It's been amazing.